Hi, everyone. This is Peg Mulqueen with a special episode of the Ashtanga Dispatch podcast. Right now, I'm actually sitting in Mysore, India, and I'd be lying if I didn't admit that I'm slightly relieved to be out of the U.S. right now. This election has left me feeling beat up, fired up, hopeful, and hopeless all at different times. And no matter what side you sit, that's the one thing I think we can all agree on. And that's that there are sides, opposite sides, sides divided. That's why I asked Dr. Carol Horton to sit down and chat with me before I left for India. Carol is a former political science professor turned writer, activist, and yoga teacher. Her work is at the intersection of mindfulness, social science, and social justice. So if there was anyone, anyone who I felt could help me sort through current events, my emotions, and help me understand what I can do going forward, it would be Carol. I know many of you have been feeling the same, and probably even more so today, the day of Donald Trump's inauguration. And though I was at first relieved to be half a world away, I admit, part of me wants to be on the ground with you, adding my voice to yours peacefully and powerfully. Maybe in a way I am with this podcast. But either way, real change doesn't happen in a day or through a march or even through one election. It comes when we decide to change ourselves, looking at our own behavior first and committing ourselves to being different or at least being open. That's how we'll start to make a real difference. Here's Carol Horton with more. Hey everyone, it's Peg Mulqueen with your latest episode of the Ashtanga Dispatch podcast. Today I am speaking with Carol Horton, who is a formal political science professor turned author, consultant, and yoga teacher. I think we should also add activist in there too. Carol has a strong voice and she's not afraid to use it. She's taught yoga in a county jail, a center for homeless women, a residential foster care facility, and her most recent book is in is the first in a series of yoga service best practices entitled Best Practices for Yoga with Veterans. And if I'm correct, I do believe the cover features a good friend of mine, Dan Nevins. Oh, that's right? correct. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> and Catherine Thomas, yeah, who I work with at the Yoga Service Council. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, Dan's yeah. a good friend of mine. So it's really when I looked it up and I saw him on the cover, I was like, oh, that's so sweet. That's awesome. Cool. He's a, he's a big inspiration. Yeah, cool. amazing. Carol, thank you for agreeing to come on the show. It was, a, it was a, uh, an act of faith of me writing to you. I was a little nervous. Um, <laughs> I, I hate talking, but you know, I've spent, I'm 50 years old. I've spent my almost my whole life trying to avoid political subjects. Um, mm. the, the, and, and no, seriously, conversations. I mean, forget about postings mm. on social media. I would avoid talking politics if, as if my life depended on it. And now I, it's, it's unavoidable. Mm. This election has left me reeling. It's left me feeling I, I, when we talked before uh, we started the broadcast, I think I told you, I, 
I feel like there are days when I want to scream, when I'm angry. There are days I want to put my head in a hole and not talk to anyone. I feel afraid. Um, I feel sad. I feel hopeless a lot. And I'm not accustomed to feeling that way, Mm. you know? Anyway, I opened up your article, Post-Election, Making Space for Life, and I found some solace in your article, actually. And that's what prompted me to finally ask you, though I'd been thinking about it for a long time. That's great. Thank you. Where do we start? Have people been writing you a lot behind the scenes? Because I've been getting emails from people. Uh, students, yoga students, and mm-hmm. yoga, other yoga teachers. Not so much. And people more funnel me um, articles and stuff that they want to share that I think they don't want to put on their own Facebook page or social media feed. And uh, so, like, they kind of send me stuff, and um, I sort of curate it because uh, I, I just always follow the news, particularly right now. And I've started posting a lot of articles that I think are particularly good or interesting or relevant. So that's more of what I get than the sort of, you know, how I'm feeling, that sort of thing. Yeah, because I feel like I hide behind you. Like I told you, I read everything that you post, but I definitely (laughs) am like hiding behind you. You're the voice. And I feel like you add a level of discernment. um, But also you're passionate. Hmm. And you're not afraid. Well, well, are you afraid sometimes to speak out <laughs> in the way you have? Um, yeah, sometimes. I, I mean, I, I think it would be um, dishonest not to recognize that there's some scary dynamics going on right now. And certainly the social media world has changed a lot in the last few years. And I do think you have to be careful. Um, I mean, I'm very aware of what I post that's public versus friends only and how I say things and try to kind of make calculations about how things will land with people with different points of view. Um, So I'm not as unfiltered as I would be with a friend in person and so on. Though occasionally I'll be like, okay, I'm going to put a rant up and I'm just going to rant and I don't care. Uh, I try to hold back from, being, you know, angry and reactive. And, you know, occasionally when I let myself go past that boundary, I I always regret it. I mean, I think that's fine in, in sort of personal interactions, but when you're putting something out publicly, I think it's, it's more useful to more people to be more tempered more of the time or to let the emotions be thoughtful. (laughs) So I guess that's a way of saying, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely working through, if not always fear, though that sometimes comes up, but more often sort of uh, mm, an attempt to be diplomatic and um, sort of careful, you know, without being self-censoring. So it's a dance, I guess. It is, you know, you brought up social media. And mm. I realized, and this election actually made me realize, just how one-sided I was. In Mm. other words, 
is social media allows you to filter. You were talked about the filter. You don't just filter you, but you filter what comes in. And right. I freely use that filter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I definitely funnel and tunnel. I, I know what I read and I have narrowed myself into a place and I didn't realize it until this until this election season, mm. how much I had narrowed myself that I wasn't actually aware mm-hmm. of the climate. Do you think that that was something other people experienced? Oh, yeah. And I mean, it, it is social media amplifies just real life. So totally like on social media, as we know, Facebook and other platforms have algorithms to give us what we're more likely to engage with because that's how they make money by levels of engagement. And then we also certain things we don't want to deal with. And then, so we, we unfriend people or don't click on certain things and it all adds up to, you know, we all have our specialized little tunnel, but I mean, beyond that, I'm very aware. I'm very much more aware now of just how even in my whole life, I have not been, as understanding Mm -hmm. as I thought I was of Mm -hmm. different points of view that are very powerful in the United States. I mean, I thought I was understanding. I may come from a social science background, so I've actively tried to like understand different parts of our political culture and so on. And I was aware that I live in a blue state bubble or, you know, blue neighborhood, blue city, blue state. Like, I know I'm in a bubble. That wasn't a surprise. But even, like, the awareness I thought I had, I I was really caught up short. I I wasn't as aware as I thought. This this was an eye-opening 18 months coming up to the election. I mean, not only the outcome of the election, but the whole dynamic with the campaign and the media and the social media and the cleavages that developed. And I, I mean, I just, I've never experienced anything like it, but of course no one else has either because it is quite unprecedented. I think everyone <laughs> agrees with that. <laughs> everyone agrees with that. Yeah. yeah. It's funny. I looked at my behavior even outside of social media and I realized, you know, even the news stations that we watch and they all kind of funnel into what we already believe or, you know, it's just like minds most of the time. I actually started subscribing to Fox News. <laughs> I like. I just figured I have to start changing something about me so that I'm not uh, closing myself off. I mean, talk about building walls. I mm-hmm. have not realized that I built so many walls. I mean, I like to think of myself as open, compassionate, kind, you know, all those things that every yogi wants to say Mm. and yet I realized just how closed off and how out of touch I was I knew when I I went back to visit my parents and I guess where they live is I mean I live in Montana you would think I would see it all the time but I live in a liberal I live in Bozeman which Mm -hmm. you know college town yeah different from the rest of the state so I hadn't really encountered anything went back to visit my parents and there were signs for Trump everywhere and big ones Um, and I started listening to what, you know, my dad's friends had been saying at the Legion and things like that and and realized that there were people definitely that felt very 
left out and behind and that I could come off sounding like an elitist when I spoke. And that was disturbing to me um, enough for me to subscribe to Fox News um, <laughs> so that I could stay better informed. I mean, there's a whole spectrum, right? So you can you could spend your whole life on on you know sort of checking out the spectrum from right to left right now because it's big. But I would just say, you know, if you're going to subscribe to Fox News, I think that's awesome. I was thinking myself, I should like I should listen to Fox News more. Um, you know, I'm very much in the liberal media establishment world. Like I listen to NPR, I read the New York Times, I read the Washington Post, and then you know I go more left. I read Mother Jones. I have started reading more of the conservative. Well, some of the mainstream conservative stuff like National Review. And then also poking a little around a little in the like more radical right world online. That would be scary. Like no, I can't I, even I, to educate myself. I it's good to get a, get sort of like, oh my God, this is going on. But I couldn't do it daily because I would just be too upset. But also there's, you know, like the root is a good um source for African American American political thought and cultural thought. You know, there's so much out there. It, it's, um, it can get overwhelming, but I do think spending some time sort of familiarizing ourselves with at least some of the different coordinates. And it's more than just sort of conservative liberal, right? I mean, that is just still a really small part of the larger world. And then there's a lot going on that I think is cross-cutting, which is good, of different categories, and hopefully there'll be new stuff coming up that right now none of us can pigeonhole or foresee, because I think we really need some new ideas and movements, you know, well, politically and culturally in this country. Anything. So the political part, the right-left, was a little bit easier for me to open my mind to. Yeah. There's other stuff out there that hasn't been and has left me really frightened. I feel mm -hmm. like a little bit of a Pandora's box has mm -hmm. been opened and mm -hmm. I don't really know what to do with that. And I, I'm talking about, you know, the sexism, the mm -hmm. bigotry, um, mm -hmm. the white supremacy that mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe, I mean, there are certain people that believe I've heard I've heard from some people who say, I'm glad it's out in the open. I'm glad people feel free to speak their minds. At least then I know, you know, it's not it's like you can deal with the enemy, you know, not, you know, mm -hmm. hidden. me, I'm I'm the opposite. I liked it better when it was socially unacceptable to voice <laughs> those mm -hmm. kind of beliefs. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's so complicated. I mean, I think that there is, I guess I would say, I feel both at the same time, not either or. So part of me feels like, yes, it's true. That a lot of America and particularly certainly white America, you know, we kind of convinced ourselves that um, things were a lot better than they were. So having a wake-up call is a good thing. Um, on the other hand, what's also true is that I think the assumption that, like, if people are voicing racism more openly now or championing white nationalism more openly, openly now, that that was always there and it's just a voicing is, I, I would guess, quite factually wrong. I mean, 
social movements build, you know, ideas build. So sometimes, yes, there have always been those people who have those ideas, um, but they were very marginalized. So now, yes, they can step forward. So that doesn't change. But then there's other people who I think are more sort of influenced by, it's like a contagion that can spread. So I'm really unhappy, you know, not me personally, but say I'm someone who I feel really unhappy. I think things are really wrong. I feel dispossessed. I don't really know how to explain it to myself. But then something comes along and it's like, this is the explanation. Not only that, like here's a movement you can be a part of and now you can feel more empowered and now you have a community. And that, so I'll, I'm going to be pulled toward that, right? And then the more it gets legitimacy and the more it's like, oh, it's okay. Like these unbelievable misogynists can now go on speaking tours around college campuses, which is actually happening, which is just like shocking what people are saying. Or these white supremacists can now have meetings in D.C. and have it covered by the mainstream media because they have some connection to the incoming administration. So that makes it newsworthy rather than just, you know, so marginal. Why should we cover this? That gets it out more. It continues to build. I mean, I think it's really important to um, delegitimize and not accept and not normalize those developments because the more we say like, Oh, well now it's just when the open that was always there. I mean, there's a way in which that sort of opens the floodgates more. It's like, okay, some of it was always there, but it's building and that's bad. <laughs> we don't want that to happen. You know, <laughs> it's building and that's bad. I like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny you, and I'm going to read you a quote that I got from your last article. Cause I thought it was mm -hmm. so beautiful. And it was on practice, your practice. And you said, often after a good practice, I look at my mat and visualize a pile of dirty, broken glass, glittering shards, muddy rubble, a heap of stuff that's broken free and been let go of. It's not a pretty metaphor, but getting rid of shit that's constricting and clogging your psyche doesn't lend itself to beautiful imagery. I, f I relate to that. In, in not just in yoga, but like mm -hmm. what we're talking about right now is that mm -hmm. we're break. I mean, we're breaking apart. The, the process is happening. I mean, mm. we're moving through it and mm -hmm. it does feel broken, feels dangerous, feels necessary. But I don't know what to do with it still. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I feel the same way, right? So, I mean, on the one hand, that sort of processing, I do feel as a yoga practitioner, I'm committed to not letting negative emotions sort of lodge in me and cathecting them, right? So it's like, I don't want to be motivated by hating people. I think it's fine to hate certain actions or ideas, but, you know, to actively hate others is not, not something I want poisoning my being. Um, I think it's fine to be angry as a motivator, but not to sort of like constantly stay in a state of agitation and, and rage that and be reactive is not what I want. And, and I feel not what the yoga tradition teaches as, 
a more enlightened way to move through the world. But that said, I do want to be involved. I don't want to just be like sort of letting go of stuff and being okay. And I, I want to be involved. I want to take action. I think it's important. And um, I know I and a lot of my friends are asking the same question. What is the best thing for us to do? Because um, when the election was going for me, there was an easy answer. It's like, okay, if I want to get more involved, I'll make phone calls for my candidate. I'll go canvas. I'll go door to door. It's like there's something to hook up with. There's a definite goal. There's a definite outcome. I'm going to orient myself towards that. Mm-hmm. Now that that's over, um, you know, there's so many important causes. There's so many good organizations. There's so many decisions to be made about what's the best use of the time and resources that I have. So I'm looking, I guess, as I'm like, I'm really looking like, you know, looking at local um, political groups. I would like, I know that I would like something that I could go to in person. I think that's really important. I would like to find some sort of political engagement that I'm not going to like drop everything and become a full-time activist, I don't think. Um, but I'd like to do something where I can in person go and connect with other people. I live in Chicago, in Chicago where I can learn from them, where I can be part of something that feels bigger, that also feels effective. So what is that going to be? You know, and looking, we have various groups that I'm going to start checking out. Um, And then there's things that I can do more virtually. I mean, I can continue to write. Um, You know, I can make the phone calls. I can show up at certain demonstrations. But to me, it's a big question mark, really, I only have so much time and energy that I'm going to devote perhaps to political work and that maybe that'll change, but what's the best use of it? What do I really believe in? What feels effective? Because it's hard to keep putting your energy into something if you don't feel it's effective. And um, it's tough. You know, I mean, for me, if it were easy to simply join I'm a Democrat, join the Democratic Party more actively and and help push it in the direction that I would like to see it go, I would do that. But it's actually not easy to do that. Um, it's not a party that has a grassroots infrastructure at this point. And often if you live somewhere like I do in Chicago, there's a whole sort of world of politics and machinery and so on that is really not something that I feel capable of negotiating or do I really want to. That's not – so – yeah, I mean, I, I'm looking, you know, and I, I would, inc- I just feel like we, if we stay active and receptive and look actively for the best way to put our energies, there's going to be a lot of stuff coming down the pike in 2017, and I think there will be ways to get involved, but I do think it requires um, thought and time and energy just to decide where to funnel ourselves. Unless we're already people who are really, you know, enmeshed in something that we think we want to stick with and that's very uh, compelling to us. Now, I think you brought up some really good points. And I think that's part of where the hopelessness and Mm. overwhelming feelings come from when a number is so large, when it feels so infinite and big 
um, such as the next four years. Like you said, when we had something mm-hmm. tangible we could do, and yeah. that was either canvas or, you know, what, what, even vote, even just like you knew your vote, your, yeah. your day was coming or, or talking to neighbors and, and whatever it is you were doing, there was something you could do. There was a goal really mm-hmm. that was in mind right. that we were working towards. And, and there was a sense of togetherness and community uh, around that. There is less of that now because, you know, election day is coming and this will probably be aired um, or election day is come, but inauguration inauguration will be uh, is right around the corner. And it feels like four years of a a big abyss and not knowing kind of what to do. And I like what you said in person. I like the in-person Mm-hmm. I think we can get stuck behind computers and think that mm-hmm. likes and shares are enough. But as you and I both noted, that's in a tunnel, you know, of like-minded people. What's what's that really doing? It's just a collective. Um, we're just reinforcing each other. That's it. It's not really making a big difference. But but actually going out and being with and it doesn't make you feel connected sometimes. I mean, social mm-hmm. media does in some way, but in other ways, it removes us or yeah, I think it has a role. I mean, I, I think that to some extent, connecting with like-minded people and feeling bolstered or just networking is really useful. But once you get into that tunnel thing exclusively, mm-hmm. um, I think that's problematic. Also, I just think that in person, it, it's, it's a different experience. It's a different energy. It's mm-hmm. it's irreplaceable. Um, and I feel that it's important. And I mean, I, I do think there's also just the uncertainty of what is really going to move and what's not going to move. So, you know, Trump has always had a not very coherent, shall we say, um, plan that he put forth about what he wants to do. And even the, the some of the big pieces of it have already been abandoned before he gets into office. So, you know, for example, lock her up, lock her up. And it's like, no, I don't really want to bother Hillary anymore. Um, Drain the swamp. No, I don't really want to drain the swamp. Um, You know, the infrastructure thing, how's that really going to happen? The the people he's appointing to major federal agencies, many of them are dedicated to wanting to dismantle those, but years of experience show that it's not that easy. Um, to what extent will the Trump administration stay within the boundaries of established norms and laws? And to what extent will they run roughshod over them? We just don't know. Um, so, you know, the deporting undocumented immigrants, et cetera, is that going to really happen on a big scale? I mean, who knows, right? So, I mean, I think in part I'm figuring that a lot will happen or uh, there will be big pushes to try to make certain things happen. They're talking now about um, passing legislation that would make it legal to discriminate against um, LGBTQ people on the basis of religious beliefs. You know, will that get passed? There's all, yeah, and there's all sorts of things. So kind of, I guess I'm thinking like, depending on what actually gains momentum, I think it's going to be a work of op- opposition a lot, <laughs> but hopefully in that process, there'll also be a creative 
dynamic that gets generated because I think it's important to say what you're for, not just what you're against. But I think a lot of it will be opposition in the next few years. And, you know, what will be most compelling that I could be involved with on the ground where I live? You know, we have a how lot do, of Americans. I don't know. We'll see. How do we know where to, where would people start to look for groups? I mean, you're talking about checking out yeah. um, more grassroots communities there in Chicago. How, where, where would anyone else in the country, where do you look? I mean, if you've never been active politically, if you're, if this yeah. is kind of your first toe in the, you know, you're like, oh my gosh, I know I have to do something. Now what? Yeah. You know? Well, where would you suggest starting to look? Um, you know, that's a good question. I mean, I think, um, actually like the internet's a good tool. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've connected with, um, certain organizations that I want to start checking out through checking up what's available through meetups, emails I've gotten about certain progressive political groups that I haven't bothered to go to their meetings before, but I knew were out there. I've gone back and sort of looked at their stuff and put on my calendar. Um, talking to people who are in your area who know more politically than you do, who could plug you in, I think would save a lot of work. <laughs> so if you know somebody who, you know, sort of is on your wavelength, and is more involved, you know, talk with them, figure out, like, help them give you the lay of the land. Um, I, I think for people who, I know this, in the yoga community on the whole, a lot of people aren't involved in religious institutions. But for those who are, I think there's going to be a lot of work coming out of churches, synagogues, and temples. And that would be a good place if, if you have that sort of community. And then, I mean, there's also, um, there's also the possibility of starting something, you know, for those of, of us who are more oriented towards organizing people, um, it might be possible to start a local chapter or do something in your community that brings together the people, you know, um, yourself, you know, um, Van Jones has a initiative going, um, that I think is interesting. Um, and I think he's kind of emerging as a leader who's interesting in trying to bridge some of the divides we have. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't have anything more profound to say than sort of, <laughs> I guess that's what makes it grassroots. Talking to people right? who know better, researching. No, no I guess that's what makes it with local institutions you're already a part of. We have something yourself. <laughs> Do you think the yoga communities have a role in this? Um, I think we could, you know, um, and I think, I think yoga in and of itself can be a very, um, healing practice to offer people who, um, are actively trying to engage with what's happening in ways that, um, are bringing up a lot of pain and trauma and fear and so on. Um, so I think, you know, if you're a, a teacher who, who knows how to work in a trauma-informed way and so on, that could be a great thing to offer to activist groups um, if they're receptive to it, which I think increasingly people are. 
yoga studios, of course, have space where people could meet, which is a huge thing, right? Like if you want to bring together a group of people, a lot of people are in small apartments or houses or, you know, or have kids, we can't necessarily get a group together. But yoga studios have that dedicated space. They don't have classes going all the time. So that's a huge resource. Um, there's also, you know, mailing lists. There's also a website. So there's things that could people know how to do or mobilize or tap into. And there's also, to some extent, a kind of shared culture and values that could be um, harnessed for those who are interested in it to speak to this political moment, right? So I think, you know, yoga practitioners often might be coming from a position of, if they're interested in getting more involved, wanting to know, like, well, how do I integrate this with a commitment to Ahimsa or to um, my desire to always sort of spread peace, but I'm getting involved in something, I want to get in something that's very not peaceful. And how do I negotiate those things? And, um, you know, having conversations about how to reinterpret, I think, some of the values that yoga practitioners might share in light of what's happening would in itself be a way of energizing people, bonding them, you know, coming up with something new and creating more of a sense of, um, energy and confidence about one's abilities. Cause I think, you know, you have to bring yourself in. So if you've spent years being committed to yoga, it's not like you're going to leave all that behind or, you know, I don't think it'd be the most useful thing to like, okay, well that's no longer relevant. Throw in the stretch. I could totally, I mean, I, you know, I think you have to kind of bring in who you are and think like, how do I integrate into this? What's happening now in such a way that's dynamic, that's creative, that's inspiring. That may mean, changing your relationship with yoga, but I think in a way that evolves it, not in a way that rejects it. Right. I mean, I know that like after the election, I, I went through a lot of sort of like, like, why does yoga even matter to me anymore? It's like, I just drop everything and be an activist. This is like, so not important. But you know, the fact of the matter is, is that for me personally, like I just can't get through um, even a couple of days feeling decent unless I practice yoga. I mean, it's just, it works for me really well. You know, physically, I feel bad if I don't do it. And then it's not just physical. It's just like this emotional, psychological, spiritual, just like I talked about in my blog, sort of like this psychic gunk that just builds up in my system. And And the more I'm getting involved with all these kind of scary things that are happening, the more stuff I'm taking in. And pretty soon, you know, I've always long said to myself, like, if it wasn't for yoga, I'd just be like a lot of people in this country on painkillers and antidepressants. Not that there's anything wrong with that if you need it. But, you know, it, it allows me to be, you know, not only functioning, but energetic and, and have something to, to, to give, you know, so I pretty quickly came around to the view that like I should keep time for my yoga practice and um, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to give it up. And um, yeah, I, I, I'm still, I'm still exploring. I mean, I, I'm very involved in the yoga service council and what I call the socially engaged yoga community, which 
I think the Yoga Service Council, which I serve on the board of, is part of, but it, it's like bigger than us. Um, and it's a great part of the yoga world for people who have these interests and want to find a way in. Um, I think that's another answer is connecting with some of those people who are going to be asking these same questions. So like the service council, citizen, well, um, I mean, the yoga and body image coalition is more specialized. Talking about the coalition and the council. But anyway, I feel like super inspired. And you mentioned the board, the council that you serve on. Yeah, the Yoga Service Council. And you had asked, what about on the local level? Because mm -hmm. that's an umbrella organization. Because um, you got me all inspired. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so with the Yoga Service Council, um, we have a still kind of nascent initiative. Um, but you don't really need us for it necessarily to grow what we call local yoga service networks. And some of these already exist. Like in Chicago, I and several other people, and actually this was independent of the Yoga Service Council, though I was inspired by the Yoga Service Council to do this in part. Uh, we started a group called the Socially Engaged Yoga Network. And um, we basically uh, put together, started an email list of everyone we knew collectively who was interested in sort of engaging yoga with social justice issues, with, you know, community development, with serving people who normally can't access yoga, with whatever, being socially engaged. And when you had the five of us, it was five of us at the time starting out, put on one list everyone we could think of, and they started collecting their friends. I mean, pretty soon, I mean, we're in an urban area, granted, but we had a list of a couple of hundred people. And so we started having, um, we figured out a structure that would work for us that was actually doable because it's all volunteer. And for a couple of years now, we've had um, quarterly meetings. We actually have one coming up the weekend of the inauguration that's about um, yoga, self-care, and community building in light of what's happening right now. And at every meeting, um, people who are in this network come together. It's often a kind of changing group. We usually we started off with only about maybe 12 to 15. Now we usually get about 30 to 50. Wow. And um, people present, uh, someone organizes it. Um, 
the organizational locus has shifted over time. It used to be me and some other people. Now it's some other people. Uh, get a couple of people who are willing to present, share their expertise. And so there's a topic. So we've had topics like integrating yoga into mental health care or yoga on the inside, which is about teaching in um, correctional facilities. Um, and people speak. There's a open Q&A. There's networking. There's always food. So people bring, um, you know, food food is good. so it's like a potluck thing. And, um, you know, sometimes people share various sorts of practices that they uh, find helpful or teach. Um, so the topic varies in short. Um, and like I said, we're doing one the weekend of the inauguration with the thought in mind that for us to come together as a community at that time is going to be really important. Um, so starting a yoga service network is a great way to bring people together who want to make these connections that we're talking about. Um, there's a group like that in Rochester. There's a group in Atlanta. There's a group in Boston. And it's idea that we hope will, will spread. Um, and then Citizen Well, which is another group I've done some, um, I'm not officially involved with, but have gone to their retreat and so on. They uh, train people, actually, who want to um, form local groups like this in the based in the yoga community that um, are going to engage with some sort of local political or social issue that they care about and integrate, you know, community building and their practice and whatever they want to do. So uh, it's a little different model, but same idea. And uh, getting back to the yoga studio as a resource idea, I mean, with socially engaged yoga network in Chicago, first we start off in someone's home, but then when we got more established, we now rotate studios. So we contact a studio owner and say, Hey, you know, would you be willing to host this sometime? And they donate the space. And since it's not always at the same place, no one's always, you know, giving out that time and energy um, to donate the space, but uh, people come to their studio, then, you know, different neighborhoods and um, it works. Yeah, it works really well. I, I mean, I, I can't tell you how inspiring the meetings are and bringing together people who really share your interests and want to kind of integrate yoga into their lives and into the world in a similar way, but of course yet are doing all sorts of different things to bring together a community like that is, is, is just really inspiring. Well, I think you've totally inspired me. I mean, I, I think, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think uh, before I talk to you, I was just really grateful. I'm leaving for India on Tuesday for two months. And I, I guiltily was so happy that I was leaving for a few months and can turn it off. And cause I was in that place. I'm still really grateful to be going to India, but <laughs> after listening to you, I actually feel incredibly inspired and enthusiastic about perhaps coming back here to Bozeman and starting something just like this like the it's yoga service council i love that idea and i don't know why it never occurred to me that i could actually be someone to organize 
Well, I mean, it's it's a lot to take on. It, it's, it's definitely good to have people to work with. Um, I, I, you know, but it, it is quite doable, right? And and to have just even one or two other people who, you know, are on board and can support and help. It, it's just, you know, and then you've community. got a nucleus and things build. Also, where you are, I would add that um, you've got a university there, and that's another resource. Like our Rochester Yoga Service Network is very integrated with a local college there. And so there's a college-based yoga service network, and then there's just like a community-based one, and they collaborate at the university. Well, the college is very uh, supportive, let the community have meetings there and so on and so forth. So I think a lot of young people are going to be very, very energized by what's happening and want to get involved. And so another good uh, connection um, for people who are in college or university towns, maybe, you know, maybe that as well. And and I, I think also that sort of intergenerational and community building and connecting with, with educational institutions, then, you know, maybe you get like, you want to know more about, um, say, if you're working on, I mean, we had meetings on um, yoga on the inside. So we had, um, a social worker who was trained at the University of Chicago Social Service Administration give us a presentation on what's happening with mass incarceration in the U.S. She's a yoga practitioner. So she has that training, and, and people are are usually very willing to, um, one time, you know, share it for free. Like, everything we've done in Chicago is no cash, right? Like, the studio owners donate the space. The organizers donate their time. The presenters donate their time. And that's why we did it quarterly, so it's not overwhelming. Um, but, but you could do it with, with cash, but it's easier. You know, whatever. Whatever works. I think, I think it's not- People are usually willing to donate some time. Sure. And we're tapping into yeah. a community we already have and in a yeah. vision we already share. And with people, we generally already know. Yeah. I. Uh, I think it's brilliant and simple and I can't believe it didn't even occur to me, but if it didn't occur to me, I think there's a lot of us that it, it, it doesn't occur to. I think when you get into a state of anxiety, Mm. you get stuck and Uh you get overwhelmed and everything seems hopeless and, you know, daunting. And so we, we go between those, you know, either getting on there and through fits of rages or sticking our head in the sand and just wanting to make it go away. But just like with the election, when we have something to do and we are surrounded by people to support and whether it's in service or in a learning mode or in a, you know, planting seeds, which I think you've just been doing for the past hour uh, with me, (laughs) these are things that we can grow and we can do. And all of a sudden things feel so helpless or hopeless, you know? Totally. And I would just put in a little plug here for, um, regardless of what your normal yoga method is, uh, doing the trauma informed yoga training is so useful in terms of understanding how, some of the practices we're super familiar with mm-hmm. uh, can help us and others learn to self-regulate in ways that we can get 
past that kind of fight or flight response is what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Sort of like either I'm so energetic, like I don't know what to do, or like I got to run away. That's a sort of trauma response, you know, fight or flight or freeze. Those are the classic ones, fight, flight, freeze. Right. And, you know, there's very simple um, explanations in terms of the organization of the brain uh, and nervous system that you learn in a good trauma-informed yoga training that explain how when that sets in, it's actually absolutely true that you can't engage in higher order cognitive processing, right? Like your rationality and your analytic skills, like they just shut down. I mean, that's how we're wired. Yeah. So when we understand that better, I mean, again, that's how yoga can be so helpful. We learn how like, okay, you know, this kind of fight, flight, freeze response in some sense is kicking in. We can work with tools that we know through yoga and mindfulness to uh, first settle that down. Then we can connect with how we're feeling and process that in a safe way. So all the, you know, the emotional tones and sensations and so on. And then when we're through that and more integrated and centered and calm and grounded, then we can start thinking in a way that where there's more clarity, where we're not just like charging off blind because we're freaked out. And I think that's a hugely useful thing. It's not super complicated. And particularly when you're a yoga practitioner who already understands in an embodied way how the practice works, but just learning some of the theory and learning how it can be taught to others in a very simple way is, is I think a great investment. So I, like, I think that I've gotten so much out of it um, and it's something that's spreading. Yeah. Well, I think you just acknowledged something that has been hard to acknowledge and that's that this has been traumatic I think it's it's hard to label it. You know, we think mm. of trauma as something deeply personal. We can name incidents, but an, an election isn't usually one of those things, or it's never been in my experience in this yeah. country. I mean, and certainly in other countries, absolutely. In this country, not. So I wouldn't have labeled it. I felt traumatized. <laughs> I have seen the effects of trauma, but you know, it's hard, it's hard to call it a trauma, but yet you just did. It was, <laughs> I mean, not for everybody, of course. I mean, there's plenty of people sure. who were happy right. that Trump won and there's other people who just, Oh, nothing's going to change or, you know, I don't care or nothing bothers me. I mean, I've seen all sorts of responses, but, but there's a lot of people who uh, were profoundly shaken. And there's a lot of people who are in positions where they have very good reasons in real life to be deeply worried. Uh, I would not count myself as one of those people, but um, certainly I live around a lot of people in a city who would fall into that, that category. And there's also, of course, people who've actually personally experienced some more, you know, hate crimes in their lives or just harassment or negativity or, you know, like you were, we were talking about this sort of now it's okay to be more open about your racism or whatever it may be. I mean, there's definitely people who have already personally experienced that and that on top of everything else that's happening in the big picture. I just, you know, it would definitely be traumatizing. I, I mean, trauma 
you don't want to throw around the word too lightly, but it is uh, a word that refers to experiences that overwhelm us in ways that make us feel like we can't be safe no matter what we do, that our sense of meaning in life has been, you know, sort of um, sabotaged in a way that we can't control. And that's profoundly upsetting. Um, so I think there's there's degrees of trauma surrounding the election for different people, uh, but it's definitely out there. And in some cases, people may be, you know, subjected to very traumatic, life-altering uh, political and legal changes. We don't know, like we were talking about, we don't know what's coming down the pike, but certainly there's been discussion um, of some very radical changes. And, um, and then the culture is changing in some very frightening ways. Well, I appreciate, so, yeah. Yeah, I appreciate you calling <laughs> it. I mean, I, that's what I do appreciate about your writing. I appreciate about what you put out there. I, I certainly am thankful that you're willing to give it a name, um, but also willing to help us kind of see through and things that we can do, you know, that, that are already there. We have tools. We have a method. We have some ways of dealing. I predict that when the inauguration day comes that there might be a reemergence of real strong emotions and fear and anxiety. Um, the way we felt on election day. Yeah. And so I think this will be timely, uh, our talk. Yeah. I mean, who knows what exactly will come? I mean, I know there's going to be a lot of protests as well. And, and, you know, I'm always worried about uh, violence breaking out in ways that will, you know, really be, yeah, I, it just, I don't know, you know, what's coming down the pike and no one does, of course, no one does, but it's a volatile situation. No doubt. No doubt. I mean, this is a historic time. Things have shifted. We're in new, new territory and it doesn't look, like friendly, safe territory for a lot of people. No. <laughs> and it's not supposed to be is the other thing, right? I mean, no one's pretending that it is going to be for everybody. It's not. So, yeah. We got to work that out for ourselves, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> and I guess all those, those 50 years of staying out of the political scene, I think, um, I think those are over for me. I think... I think it's time uh, for me to to dip my toes in the water, and and I certainly appreciate you setting an example and sharing uh, with me and and all the listeners today of things we can do. And I don't know. I, I'll keep. I hope everybody continues to read your stuff. And your your website is Carol Horton PhD. Yeah. Dot com. Yep. So easy. Love it. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> I encourage everybody to follow and to read and, and your models that we talked about, the, the, the yoga service networking, um, the citizen well, can those be found on your website? Uh, no, those are set. Let's see. I don't know. Yeah, they're separate organizations. So okay. www.yogaservicecouncil.org. Uh, citizen well is C T Z N W E L L. 
probably.org. Not sure. I'll put that. Definitely on the web. No problem. Definitely on the web. Yeah. And by the way, I just want to show you, nobody else can see this, but this is actually where I learned about you. I'm holding up uh, Carol's book. I didn't mention this in the intro, the 20th, 21st century yoga, culture, politics, and practice. And it's a, it's a collection of essays, amazing essays, really meaningful. Thank Um, you. Yeah, I mean, I just, it it made me happy to see people in the yoga world, teachers, leaders, uh, talking about subjects that are pertinent, not just politics, right? Uh, body image, um, yeah. you know, the, te- you know, power dynamics. Uh, gosh, there was a lot of, you've been putting out yeah. a lot of good work and, the yoga community is a strong existing force and for us to be engaged in dialogue and working together, I think we can't underestimate uh, the powerful difference we can make when connected and together. Yeah, we can do a lot. I mean, I I think we have important tools, honestly. And, uh, like I said, I think that there's a culture, a shared culture that hasn't been oriented by and large to political and social engagement at all, if anything, more the opposite. But there's no reason it can't be redirected. And in some ways, groups like we've been talking about, like Socially Engaged Yoga Network and Yoga Service Councils, all have already reoriented that kind of subculture in that direction. And I've seen it grow. I mean, just in the past five years, it's grown a lot. And so with these changes with the Trump administration coming in, I expect this shift will grow further. And and there's no expectation that I have that the entire yoga world is going to transform into being politically engaged. But I do think the number of people interested will grow substantially. I do think we have a lot of resources to work with ranging from the basic practice to the concrete yoga studios and meeting spaces and all that um, and more. And um, yeah. And I, I, I think it's, if it's something that sustains us, our practice that we're going to actually need it now more than ever. <laughs> so I think my initial sense of like, Oh, like I don't have time for this anymore was I quickly got past that. Right. Cause having me, break down into a mass of, you know, tension and anxiety is not going to help anybody. <laughs> no, we need you, Carol. We need you. And that's what happens if I don't practice. <laughs> well, we need you and we need everybody out there. We need Thank each you. other. Thank you so much for your time. I Thank really you. appreciate this. You're okay. Great to awesome. talk. <laughs>
by Chris Lucas and hosted by me, Peg Mulqueen. Thanks again for tuning in. And always remember, you're not alone. Vishvashanti Vastu Mm-hmm. <laughs>